Amen. Thanks, Phil. So for a minute, you're going to launch into the, the message there. I would have enjoyed it, just you were getting going. So we're, we're finishing off our, our series on Isaiah. And if you're like me, it feels like we've barely touched it. That might be because I missed two of them. Um, but it feels like we've hardly done justice to the book. But we're closing off with, as Phil said, this wonderful vision that Isaiah leaves us of the new heaven and the new earth. And the title is, is Restoration and Rejoicing. And we'll see that coming out in various ways. And it's a great post-Easter message because, of course, looking back as Christians, we can see that this prophecy has been partly inaugurated by Christ already. And through him, it will be our final destiny, this new heavens and this new earth. Now, oftentimes, see if this thing works, uh, passages like this end up producing wonderful art like that. Um, and you know, JWs like to use it as their watchtower thing, the new heavens, the new earth, that kind of thing. Someone put beside this particular picture, we'll find out that Bambi and Simba and a, and a duck will also be saved when we get to heaven. So hopefully that's a relief for all of us. But let's dig into this passage a bit more and, and try and draw out something from, from God for us this morning. And as we do that, I thought it would be helpful just to briefly remind ourselves of the context of what we've been talking about. So the, the book of Isaiah's long prophecy, 66 chapters, generally can be broken up into three sections. The first 39 chapters, um, one commentary calls them the book of the king because the focus is on the, Davidic, the restoration of the Davidic king and the fact that the people are going into exile because they keep disobeying the Lord. So he titles it the book of the king, looking forward to that time when the exile will be reversed and, and the king will appear again. Then the next few chapters up to chapter 55 is the book of the servant. And we've had two passages from that, Isaiah 40 <coughs> and Isaiah I think either no battery or is that working? Dead battery. Okay. Hello? Are we back on? Oh, we're back alive. Okay, thank you, Mark. So we're in this last section talking about what the commentator calls the book of the anointed conqueror. And you can see several times that God says he himself is going to come and deal with the people, his people and the world, both in judgment and salvation. And it begins with this salvation promised in chapter 56, verse 1. And it ends with this amazing picture of the new heaven and the new earth. And almost the last verse talks about, again, the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 66. But it's worth keeping in mind that throughout Isaiah, there's this twin theme going on the whole time of, yes, salvation, but also judgment. And in fact, the last verse is kind of a somber warning that we need to keep in mind. Isaiah 66:24: For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. 
Isaiah is very much trying to bring his people to recognize that, yes, they will face God's judgment if they don't respond. And so that's, that's part of the picture of salvation. It's not just this wonderful picture of heaven. There's also this sense of impending judgment. And so we need to keep that in mind as we, as we look through this passage. Then in chapter 65, which is our direct context, we see that there's this invitation to the Gentiles at the beginning of chapter 65, which Paul picks up on in Romans 10. Then there's the judgment that will come on Israel for not responding to God. He says, I've been holding out my hands all day long to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. And then he talks about this faithful remnant, that yes, most of Israel is going astray, but there's always this faithful remnant. And because of them, I'm now going to bless them. And so there's a contrast in how God will deal with this faithful remnant and how he will deal with the rest of Israel and the rest of mankind. But there's also a promise that the Gentiles will be invited in. And that opening up in chapter 56, it says, you know, the foreigner will be able to come and be part of God's people. And so we get this universal image that at the end of Isaiah, that it's not just about Israel. And he finishes in verse 16, this, this introductory section to our passage today, saying that Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my, from my eyes. And literally it says the God of our men, the God who says it will be, it will happen this way. And so as we move into this, behold, I will create the new heavens and the new earth, it's based on this promise from the God of our men. It's not just a, a sort of, vague hope. It's not just something they can hope will happen one day. This is a promise from the God of our men, and we can bank everything on that promise. So let's begin looking at our passage, the promise of the new creation and the new earth, the new Jerusalem from the God of our men. It says, Behold, I will create. When we think about that, it's quite amazing that um, this is an activity of God. God is always the one who is creating in the Bible. Men build things, they make things, they put things together, but only God creates. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now he's promising to do this again, a new creation. And we can see that the story that flows through Scripture is from this original creation to the new creation. Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Behold, I saw the new heaven and the new earth. So the Bible, the biblical story starts with the old creation, the one we're living in now, and walks through to the new creation where God will restore everything to the way it should be. And that's the story that we're invited into. And there's various signposts along in the scripture to this new creation. So Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 65 that we're looking at, in the New Testament also, um, 2 Peter 3, Romans 8, all look forward to this new creation that is promised by God and that's part of his story. And as, as we put all this, these signposts together, one of the interesting things we see is that it's God's activity, but he promises to do it through his Messiah. So chapter 11 of Isaiah, it begins with the, the root of David being restored and then it speaks in similar language of what will be when David, Dave, the root of David is finally restored. And it talks about exalting him before all the nations. 
Now, it's very similar language. <clears throat> and we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So we see that although it's God's activity, it happens through his Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to steal this if I can. And we see that the pinnacle of God's new creation is God's presence. If you want to, just flip a second <coughs> to Revelation 21. <coughs> it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so the pinnacle of this new creation, as it says here in Isaiah verse 18, is also part, the new Jerusalem is part of this, and that's representative of God's presence coming and being with us. And I think sometimes, you know, we even sung it today, we, we tend to think of, going up there to be with him, and that kind of leads to that kind of sitting on a harp, playing a cl- playing a, pl- sitting on a cloud, playing a harp type image. Get it, get it right, Chris, sorry. <laughs> and, and that's kind of our, our concept, somehow we're going to go up there. I was reading the, a children's Bible to Caleb the other day, and it had the picture of Jesus going up after the, you know, they, he'd risen again and leaving his disciples, and he said, Dad, does God live in space? And I was kind of thinking, well, kind of, but not exactly. And and you you don't really know how to describe it, but it's just our picture language for saying somehow the heavens, although in in the Bible they're just the stars, the earth, you know, the sky, space, they also somehow represent God's dwelling place to us. Although God obviously doesn't live in space. But the new creation, the new heavens, it gives us this picture that God comes down to dwell with us that earth now becomes his dwelling place. So instead of um, living in a temple built by man, he now lives in this new Jerusalem. And so Isaiah says, I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And in Revelation 21, we see that's because that's where God comes and dwells with us. So the new creation, the new heavens, it's not us going up there. It's God coming down to us and making earth as it fully should be. And we'll see that in a minute. So we have this amazing picture of God's <coughs> presence with us. That's what we're looking forward to. That's r- the real heart of the new creation. It's not that we'll have bodies that don't wear out. It's that God will be living with us, with us, and, and we'll be in his presence completely and perfectly. Now also in this picture, we see this incredible joy that that brings. So it says, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. Verse 18, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. In those two verses, he mentions this couplet of joy and gladness three times. He uses the same words, although in the English we kind of use, translate them differently just to make it smoother. But it's a pair of words just talking about this incredible joy there will be in heaven, in the new creation. And it's amazing to think that what we're looking forward to is joy in all its fullness. 
So we'll be made, we'll enjoy Jerusalem, enjoy its people because God is with us. We'll have that fullness of joy of him being with us. And everything that causes sadness, no more sound of weeping, it says at the end of verse 19. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Again in Revelation 21, it goes on to say, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. So that's, that's what we're looking forward to. A restored world, a restored heaven and earth where there's no reason whatsoever for tears and sadness. And that's an amazing picture that our joy will be so full because of that. But I find it even more amazing that something that Trish has already mentioned, that God rejoices over us. It says there, verse 19, No longer is it just our general joy in the new creation. It says, I will rejoice over Jerusalem, God speaking, and take delight in my people. In the previous verse, he just says Jerusalem and its people. Now it's Jerusalem and my people. God rejoices over the people in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And as I've said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're already experiencing that new creation. And I believe we can understand already that God rejoices over us. <coughs> Trish tried to get a response out of you earlier on about that. I don't know if it was just Mike wasn't in the room. But God rejoices over you. It's like God is in love with you, if I can put it that way. If you think I'm going too far in Isaiah 62, it says you, he talk, it, God is talking to Israel saying, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. And he goes on, you shall be called, my delight is in her. And talks about the land being married and then says, For the Lord delights in you, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That feeling of incredible euphoria and love that we have when we're in love, that's what the Bible says God feels for you and me. That's an incredible thought. It's the feeling we have as a parent over our newborn, that, that first child particularly. After three weeks, it dissipates a bit when you've not slept. <coughs> but God's joy does not dissipate in us. Perhaps for the blokes, we need to think of football teams. You know, the Leicester City fans are rejoicing and exulting over their team right now. If you're Welsh, maybe the rugby team. If you're Scottish, um, anyway. <laughs> and we read in Psalm 149 verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Zephaniah 3.17, Trish has already read to us this morning. Rejoice. He will rejoice over you with gladness, renew you in his love, exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. And um, John Piper says this, What do you hear when you imagine the voice of God singing? I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mountain stream. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded staggered, speechless that he is singing over me. And when you think about that, it's incredible. God is singing over me. God is singing over each one in this room. And it's worth pausing just for a second here. Tell yourself out loud, quietly or loudly, however you want to, God rejoices and sings and exalts over me. 
Tell the person next to you, if you find it hard to believe for yourself, if you don't like them tough, God rejoices over you. Tell the person next to you. God exalts over you. Mm. So I think we have this amazing picture that Isaiah and the Bible paint us of what the new heavens and new earth is. It's not sitting up on a cloud playing a harp. It's the fullness of God's presence. It's the fullness of God's joy in us. And it's the fullness of God's joy over us. And that's something worth dwelling on, rejoicing over, and getting excited about. So that's the picture we have in the first couple of verses. Behold, I will create. God will do it. New heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. That's our future, and that's amazing. And yet, it's even more amazing that we get a glimpse of it already in Christ. God is rejoicing over each one of us this morning. Now, Isaiah goes on to paint picture, a paint a picture of what life will be like in this new creation. And as I see it, it's life as it really should be. Um, verses 20 to 23. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. So we see the first picture is long Satisfied long life versus a short life. Israel was struggling with many different things and their life expectancy wasn't that great, either through the marauding Babylonians or whoever it happened to be or being oppressed by their fellow Israelites. And so life was short. And the picture of the new heavens and the new earth is this long, amazing life where if you die at 100, that's like dying as a child today. And if you don't get even up to 100, then you're considered accursed. So we have an incredibly long life. And we, of course, through the New Testament perspective, understand it as eternal life. In fact, verse 19 does say rejoice forever. So we know that this life that he's talking about is eternal life. But he's putting it in pictures that we can understand. If you die at 100, that's nothing. So we're talking about this long, long life versus the short life. Then it's a full life instead of the frustrated life they were living now. They may be alive, but everything they did led to futility. They would build a house, someone else would take it over. They would plant a vineyard, and it would be someone else's. They couldn't enjoy what they were doing. And, and we sense some of that frustration just through the fall that our work never fully satisfies us. It's not, some, you know, we just talk about making by, paying the bills, the daily grind. That's what work is to us right now. And yet in the new creation... Work will be satisfying. You'll build your house and you'll live in it. You'll plant your vineyard and you'll drink of it. 
And really we could sum it up by saying this is the blessed life that God wants to give us and that we will receive then. When you read um, Deuteronomy 28, you see a whole range of curses that God um, said to Israel would happen to them if they turned away from them. And there's you know, all kinds of different curses. But it's particularly interesting in verse 30 of Deuteronomy um, 28, it says this, You shall build a house, but not live in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but not enjoy its fruit. And then it goes on to talk about how the children will be taken away and they won't be able to stop it. A people they don't know will eat up all the fruit of their ground and all of their labors will be in vain. And in effect, what Israel was experiencing at the time of the exile was exactly the curses that God had promised them. You'll build a house, someone else will live in it. Your children will be dragged off, you won't stop, be able to stop it. You'll plant a vineyard, someone else will enjoy the fruit. And here... As a promise, God reverses that curse. He says, it's not going to be like that anymore in my new creation. You are going to build and enjoy it. You are going to plant and enjoy it. So we see this is the blessed life that God is promising us, life in all its fullness. It says, they will, not <clears throat> they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. So we enter into the fullness of God's blessing in this new creation, this new heaven, this new earth. And we're reminded of the words of Jesus where he says, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. And so we see that the new heaven, the new earth, is where that will happen perfectly. But through Christ, again, we can begin to experience just a little bit in the here and now. Maybe not in terms of drinking our own wine from the vineyard, but in knowing that God is with us in the here and now and that he's He's the one blessing us in what we do, that we don't have to toil in vain. Actually, what we do has a purpose. So that's the promise we're looking forward to, a long life, satisfying life, and this blessed life <coughs> that God promises us in the new creation. Life in all its fullness, life as it should be lived. Life here on earth as it should be. But more than that, in the new creation, we see restored relationships. Verse 24 before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. As you read through Isaiah, you get the sense of God's frustration with his people. He's continually, it says, holding out his hands to them at the beginning of, this, of chapter 65, and they're not listening. In fact, he begins the whole book in, in 1 verse 4 by saying, Israel is a people utterly estranged from God. Their relationship is completely broken. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, they're so evil, I refuse to listen to them. And so now in this picture, we have before they even call, I will answer. Before they even ask anything, I'm with them there. And so this picture of, of our oneness with God, that we'll be so close to him and so much in his presence that he's right there with us. This union, incredible oneness that we can just say anything and he already knows what it will be and he will be answering. And that's the picture of what we're looking forward to. And again, Jesus tells us that we can begin to enter into that relationship with our Father in heaven who knows what we need. He's already answering as we call. But that's the picture we have for us. Then we have restored relationships between the animals even. It says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
but dust will be the serpent's food. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb together as one. When you read Isaiah 11, it also brings out many more relationships between the animals. But basically what it's saying is there's no more prey and no more predator. That the animals are restored to their right relationship. Creation is restored to its original design. We read in Romans 8 that it's the creation is groaning, wanting to be free from its decay and destruction. And so we see this amazing picture where animals dwell together in harmony as they should. And that's what's waiting for us in this new heaven, new earth. And it also mentions this curious kind of thing, the dust will be the serpent's food. And it's hard to work out exactly what Isaiah means by that, but I I think the simplest explanation is that he's saying in the way that the serpent was the one who introduced temptation and sin to the Garden of Eden, he will no longer be able to do that because he's just going to be a simple old snake crawling along. The dust will be its food. That was the curse on the snake. And that sense has not been lifted. The, The snake will no longer be this sort of picture for sin and temptation coming into the world. This new heaven and new earth, there is no room for sin. Everything, all, all of that has been dealt with. And so there's no more sin or destruction. And it goes on to say, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Everything that causes hatred, em- that causes destruction, jealousy, envy, hatred, will have been dealt with. We'll be able to relate to one another the way we're meant to be, with no divisions because of class, no divisions because of race, no divisions because of gender. We will be in perfect harmony with one another, and there will be nothing, no one causing any hurt or destruction in all of God's creation, in his holy mountain, it says there. So we have this amazing picture of the new creation, this right relationship with God, his presence with us, his joy over us, things as they should be, life lived to its fullness. And that's the picture we can take with us as the picture of heaven. Much more reassuring to me than sitting on a cloud and playing a harp or even singing for 10,000 years. I'm not too keen on that one either. But God says the new creation, the new heavens, is going to be this amazing place with God's presence with us. That's That's an amazing picture. But we could kind of ask ourselves, well, so what? How does that help me today? What does that mean for today? And I think it's very helpful to dip into various New Testament passages, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of put them out there for you as things for you to follow up either in your home groups or or individually. We often use the phrase that someone is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Actually, what the New Testament teaches us is that the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we are because we have the right perspective. So it's worthwhile dwelling on this picture of the new heavens and the new earth. This picture enables us to have hope and to continue faithful in the midst of trials. See that in Romans 8.24, 2 Corinthians 4.16-18. It talks about if you weigh up what we're going through now with the eternity that we've just been talking about, it's completely outweighed. It talks about the, the, uh, the incomparable weight of glory that we're, that we're going to experience compared to the light and momentary troubles we're going through now. I say that not meaning to 
diminish in any way the struggles we face. Some of us are going through extremely hard things. And this picture of heaven doesn't take that away. It doesn't make it any easier to be suffering, to be going through sickness, to be losing loved ones. Our picture of heaven doesn't take away that pain, that struggle. But it does give us an anchor. It does give us something to hold on to and to say that is what awaits us and that is what through Christ we can experience even if it's just to a small degree right now. And so it's important we are heavenly minded, that we are thinking of what God has done for us in Christ. There's also the challenge that it's not just about a ticket to heaven. You know, I've accepted Christ, so now I can get on with life as I like it. 2 Peter 3 asks the question, if we're going to have the old earth taken away and a new heavens built, says, how then should we live? What kind of life should we live? And he says, as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, what should we be doing? And he says very clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3, you can read the whole chapter, living with holiness and right living because of what we hope for. Striving to be at peace without spot or blemish. Not carried away by false doctrine or instability but growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for, even speeding the day of the Lord through fulfilling his great commission. So 2 Peter 3 gives us a lot to think about in terms of how the new creation, the new heavens should affect our day to day. And then finally, I, I think as the church, we've been invited into this story of God's creation to new creation. In fact, we've been commanded to take part of it. It's not just an invitation. We're called in the Great Commission to go and spread the news of God's salvation. Isaiah 56.1, which is a picture of Israel waiting for God's salvation, is like a picture for the church today, waiting. Christ has come, he's dealt with sin, and he's, he's gone back, and we're waiting for him to return. But in that meantime... God says to Israel, and he says to the church, Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. In this meantime, in this waiting time, as the church, we're called into God's mission with him, God's mission of justice in the world, God's mission of reaching out to people with the gospel, and God's mission of stewardship. He made the creation, and he wants us to learn again what he gave Adam and Eve in the garden, that sense of stewardship and ownership of creation. So we have a lot we can be thinking about in terms of the new creation and its implications for today. Um, a professor of theology in the U.S. says, when the New Testament speaks about the future, it does so as an encouraging exhortation to faithfulness. The life of faith is not easy. But the Bible's witness to new creation serves to call God's people to a dogged commitment to faithful living in the present, in the full confidence of a secure future in God's kingdom. That full confidence affects how we live today. So let me leave you again with this incredible picture, this incredible promise. Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. Amen.